Thank you, Derek. Well, good morning, church. Uh, it's a pleasure uh, to be up here and to be able to preach God's word with you all, with, with my family. And for those of you who may not know me or are new, if you're new, welcome. Uh, my name is David Lundberg, and I'm a deacon here at GCF. Uh, I'm also a three-year reigning Ladies of Grace soup champion, apparently. So if you have a crock pot or a ladle you want me to sign, yes, thank you. Uh, we'll, we'll form a line after church, but no, no rushing. I'll get to everyone after that. <laughs> um, so we've been going through the book of Mark, taking our time through this. Uh, we find ourselves in chapter 8 this morning. So if you are able, will you please stand with me and let's read the word of God here. Uh, Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have had nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. Some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. They had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. This is God's word for us this morning. Let's pray one more time and ask God to bless um, the preaching of his word. Uh, Father, we, we do confess, Lord, we admit that we are mere humans trying to comprehend a mysterious, holy, sovereign God. But Lord, we also can confirm that through Jesus Christ, we can understand these truths through the Holy Spirit that you have given us, through the death of Christ on the cross that you have redeemed us, that in this building are your saints, brothers and sisters, redeemed by the blood of Christ. God, would you help us with understanding this morning? Lord, we confess that we are like sheep, that we will leave these doors this morning most likely and forget about a lot of what was preached or what was said. But Father, we know that your word does not return void, and your word will be exposited this morning. And that is my prayer, that I would stand out of your way, God, that you would work and move and act through your holy scriptures this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we're getting into that time of year that happens to be one of my favorites. I know fall is, is uh, a lot of, a lot of your, your favorite uh, seasons probably. The, the leaves start changing. We kind of get rid of the heat. Uh, but for me, it's one of my favorite seasons because it, it's an opportunity to spend some good old just quality family time. Now, this does involve watching TV with my family, so I'm sure this will probably discredit some of the things that I'm about to say. But hear me out. The majority of the shows we watch as a family involve food, okay? So I'm training my children up in the way they should go by teaching them to just 
love and adore great cuisine. Um, but fall does have, you know, it has a way of slowing down the, the craziness from summer. And uh, it creates room to just escape a little bit, hide away in the basement uh, when it's cold outside, snuggle up and just spend time watching shows as a family. Now, do I have any great British baking show fans out there? Yeah. Man, only like five? There's only five safe people in this church. That's crazy. <laughs> what about uh, somebody feed Phil? No? Yeah. All right, Osbournes. <laughs> right on. All right, those are two of our faves. Um, but a while ago, we, we did stumble upon a new one. We don't usually venture out too much out of the safety net of our cooking shows, but we stumbled upon one called Is It Cake? And uh, it, it's a crazy show. And for those of you who aren't familiar, it's a baking competition, essentially, where these talented pastry chefs have to compete to make a look-alike cake, a cake that looks like a specific object. So purses, bowling balls, squeaky rubber ducky. I've even seen one out of toilet paper. And after they spend hours making this cake, they then have to place it alongside the chosen object. And these judges, from a distance, have to kind of observe these objects and try to figure out which one is actually cake. It's a fascinating show, and aside from there being a, an extremely annoying host, uh, it, it was fascinating to see these identical objects. So the one we saw was tacos. It's just a bunch of plates of tacos. But knowing that, one of them was completely different underneath. We en encounter a similar scenario in our text this morning, as I'm sure this appears to be a look-alike or a repeat of one that we read a couple months ago, the feeding of the 5,000. But while on the outside it may look the same, what we're going to find this morning is that on the inside it could be something completely different. Not cake, but something different than what we may think. So this morning we're going to tackle this, this chapter um, highlighting three important questions that we should be asking as we walk through Mark chapter 8. Three questions are, is this the same narrative? Is this the same narrative? Is this the same miracle? And is this applicable to us today? So is this the same narrative? Is it the same miracle? And is this applicable for us today? So in the spirit of is it cake, let's take a step back, take a look at both these stories, the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark 6, now the feeding of the 4,000 here in Mark 8, and try to decipher if we can answer the question, is this the same narrative? Well, the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark 6 and the feeding of the 4,000 here in Mark 8 uh, have caused quite a bit of commotion for, for many reasons. But the biggest one is there's been a lot of debate over its authenticity. Some are just simply confused by it, like, well, didn't Jesus just do this a couple chapters ago? I mean, if he already performed a miracle of feeding a large crowd and he just did it again, like, it's kind of odd, right? Like, I get it, Jesus can create food out of nowhere. But there's also critics out there, theologians and scholars alike, who actually believe this to be the same story. One miracle presented by two conflicting perspectives. But is this the case? I mean, there's no denying if you read through this, there's a lot of similarities between these two stories. Both contain a large and hungry crowd. Both involve Jesus miraculously feeding uh, this crowd with fish and bread. Both involve the disciples asking, well, how are we going to feed these guys? Both record there being leftovers that are stored in baskets when it's all said and done. A lot of similarities. But within all of these similarities, there are a couple distinctions that I want to 
I want to point out this morning, and I think that these are helpful for us when we're trying to figure out, is this the same narrative? And those two are specifically the location and the crowd. We're going to focus on the location and the crowd. So you know the saying goes, location, location, location is always important. And it's very important as we watch Jesus on the move. Uh, I have a picture of a map. You can pull it up there. Uh, now, this by no means, I would not use this for archaeological digs. Um, but it's not, not that accurate either. <laughs> so uh, I'm a visual person, and it's just helpful to be able to see as we walk through this. So as we know, Jesus grew up in Nazareth, right? That's originally where his parents were from. But as he grew up and began his public ministry of teaching, he then moved his home base, if you will, of operations over to Capernaum. Well, Capernaum was located on the, the kind of the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee, and it's really where the majority of Jesus' ministry takes place, over in that area of Capernaum. But as we progress through Mark and we get to chapter 6, the parallel recording of Luke 9 says that he withdraws to a town called Bethsaida. This is where he goes to, to feed the crowd of 5,000. And this is located on the northernmost tip of the Sea of Galilee. You can see it there on the map. And this is most likely known to be the location where Jesus feeds the 5,000 from Mark 6. Well, from Mark 6, we continue through the next chapters of Mark, and we begin to see a shift in Jesus' travels, right? Just last week, we saw him travel up north to Tyre and Sidon. And by the end of chapter 7, we read that he goes back down south to what's called the region of Decapolis. The region of Decapolis. So that's where we, where we have uh, Jesus this morning in our text. Now, while Bethsaida is on the northernmost tip of the Sea of Galilee and Decapolis is kind of on the southern end, um, this is a huge difference if it's supposed to be the same story right off the bat, right? I mean, imagine I head out to go fishing after church and I tell you, hey, I'm going to go to Liberty Lake, throw in a pole, and you see me head east and you kind of forget, where did he say he was going? And you write down, I went to Hauser. Okay, that could be an understandable, you know, a reasonable misunderstanding. But the difference between Bethsaida and Decapolis was, was so vastly different. It'd be like me going to fish in Liberty Lake and you writing down that I went to Man Lake over by Lewiston, Idaho. I mean, it's just too, too different to be an error. But if that's not enough, these two locations start to make even more sense when we start to figure out who made up these crowds. Who are in these crowds that Jesus fed? So next, let's take a look at that. Let's take a look at the crowd. Well, history tells us that Galilee and its surrounding towns and villages were predominantly Jewish. So we can be confident that the first feeding of the 5,000 had a predominantly Jewish audience. I mean, the crowd was already familiar with Jesus, right? Being home-based at a Capernaum and teaching, going out throughout the region of Galilee, they would see him and they would follow him from town to town. But alternatively, Decapolis here was known for being a Gentile population with a heavy Greek influence. And this is where we start to see a massive distinction. See, Decapolis wasn't a place where you would find large crowds of Jewish people just hanging around. And as we know, Jesus or Jews and Gentiles, they didn't play well together in the sandbox, right? I mean, they would typically try to avoid one another at all costs. We hear stories of Jewish travelers, the, the Pharisees namely, that wouldn't even walk the same paths that Gentiles would walk, even if it meant taking a much longer route. 
Well, the word Decapolis here literally means ten, deca, ten. Ten cities as it consists of ten Gentile towns that were scattered out throughout its borders. Now, unlike these, these Jewish towns, which were kind of packed in and around the Sea of Galilee, these towns were more uh, spread out. They had a good amount of distance between them. So why is this significant? Well, it's significant because we know that at this first feeding, that it was closer in proximity to where these Jews lived. I mean, they were basically able to show up, eat, and leave all in the same day. Well, the Gentile crowd in Decapolis, they stick around much longer, is what the text tells us. And think about it. This is the first time that they're encountering this Jesus. They're probably amazed at what he is saying and what he's doing. And this is all so new to them. And secondly, we see that they need to be fed here prior to heading home because they have a much longer distance to travel. They probably don't have the luxury of just going back and forth from where Jesus is to their home all in the same day. So look with me again here in verses 1 through 3. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. So it's interesting how we're not only able to pick out some distinctives here, right, between these two stories, but we're learning that they're almost complete opposites of each other. Fascinating how these two stories can look on the outside like the same, but, but when we kind of start looking closer, they're almost opposites. One location's at the northern tip, the other location's on the southern end. One audience is Jewish, the other audience are Gentiles. One takes place in the spring where the grass is lush and green. And uh, the other one where we find ourselves now is taking place months later in the summer when the landscape is desolate and dry. But the best piece of evidence out there, kind of the, the nail in the coffin, so to speak, on the debate of is this the same story, actually comes uh, a few verses later in Mark 8. So go to Mark 8, verses 18 through 20. Here Jesus himself describes these as two separate events, all while he's rebuking his disciples because they're still complaining about bread, which is kind of funny, but we'll get to that next week or in a couple weeks. So let's read uh, Mark chapter 8, 18 through 20. Jesus says, having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Here's the first account. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, there's our second one. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not understand? Okay, Dave, these are two different stories. I'm convinced. And by the way, amazing job articulating your points. So what's the point then of recording two stories that highlight the same miracle? Well, if you're wondering the same thing, if you're asking the same question, I think we have to push pause right here and rewind a few frames back. Because if all we see are these stories teaching the same exact lesson, we're overlooking an often missed and pivotal point that rings throughout the New Testament. Jeff touched us on this a bit uh, last week as we were introduced to Jesus ministering to a couple Gentiles. So a better question we could be asking instead, and this is our second point, is, is this the same miracle? Is this the same miracle? 
Well, a few weeks ago, we learned that the first um, account of Jesus feeding the 5,000 highlighted an amazing creation miracle, right? I mean, Jesus made food from nothing. Think about it. It was, it was bread that was never harvested from grain, that never grew in the ground. He created fish that never swam in water, fish that never lived, fish that never died. <laughs> There's a mind twist for you. <laughs> He just created it right there, edible, ready to eat, out of nothing. But the point here was to show the Jewish crowd that Jesus was, in fact, God himself. Right? This miracle mirrored what God did for the Israelites as he fed them manna in the Old Testament. This showed that Jesus was the greatest and most compassionate king that these Jews could ever have or want. Okay, so then what are we to make of this second feeding then of the 4,000, given that they're Gentiles. Well, while Jesus does perform the same miracle of creating food from nothing, an even greater miracle takes place. And I feel strongly, we can argue about this after church. You've got to take me out to lunch, though. Uh, I feel strongly that this is where the reader wants us to focus in on. And we see this miracle in verse 2. Look with me at verse 2. This miracle is when Jesus says, I have compassion on the crowd. I have compassion on the crowd. See, this is the miracle on display in our text this morning. The God of the Jews has compassion on the Gentiles. See, God never ceases to amaze us as he meticulously fulfills his Old Testament promises as the New Testament unfolds. I mean, we see this picture beautifully come together between these two feedings as he displays his love and his provisions for the Jews first in Mark 6. And remember, Jeff talked about this last week. When Jesus encountered the Gentile woman and he told her, no, no, your time has not come yet. I'm here for my people, my, the Israelites. I'm, I'm here to minister to them first. Well, think about these two stories of the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. First, he displays his love and provisions for the Jews. Then he displays his love and provision for the nations, the Gentiles next. This is all preparing the new covenant for liftoff. But how shocking must it have been for the Jewish disciples to hear Jesus say, I have compassion on the Gentiles. What? Are you kidding me? To add another layer of significance here, this is the only time that we see Jesus, in his own words, in the first person, express that he has compassion for a group of people. Everywhere else, including Mark 6, we only see it via commentary from an eyewitness account, right? Usually in the form of, and then Jesus had compassion on the people. But this is the first time recorded ever where Jesus is saying it himself. Now, we can speculate as to whether or not this was intentional, given that this was a Gentile crowd. But I think it very much was. You see, I believe because it was so unorthodox. See, we have to go back in time to what this was like. I think because it was so unorthodox, it was so shocking to hear a rabbi, let alone God himself, express compassion towards pagan Gentiles, that they had to hear it from his mouth. It had to come directly from Jesus' lips because it was so shocking. This way, it left 0% of room for any misunderstanding or any speculation that, oh, it was just misinterpreted by whoever wrote it. Jesus didn't really have compassion. He was just kind of throwing some bread at him. But no, here Jesus, he makes himself crystal clear and says, I have compassion on the crowd. I, Jesus, have compassion on these Gentiles. 
Is it hard for you sometimes to digest some of the hard sayings from Jesus? You know, to fully embrace some of the hard sayings that we read in Scripture? There's a reason why there's a thing called buffet Christians that kind of just take what they want and leave what they don't like. But see, Jesus says and does some pretty shocking things throughout Scripture. Perhaps you find yourself in a season of discomfort or great suffering right now, and you go to your Bible for comfort, which is great. But then you're shocked to see Jesus tell Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, my grace is sufficient for you right now. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is being made perfect right now in your weakness. And no doubt, that can be a hard pill to swallow, right? Knowing that God can put a thorn in our flesh and won't remove it because he is working out his will in us. And his grace is being magnified in the process. And that is what's important. Perhaps you've been slandered or insulted by someone really close to you lately and all you want is to get justice or revenge. But then you see Jesus say in Matthew 5, 12, just rejoice and be glad. Be glad when others speak all kinds of evil against you because your reward is in heaven. That at times seems a lot easier said than done, doesn't it? So there's plenty more shocking sayings from Jesus. We saw this again last week when he calls this Gentile woman a dog. But if he's our perfect master, like a rabbi to a student, we must listen. We must trust. We must obey what Jesus is saying, his every word, even if it doesn't make sense to us at times. See, we don't have the right or the authority to say whether or not Christ's words are fair, whether or not they're equitable, PC, or whether or not they're true. Imagine his disciples pushing back on him. Jesus, um, okay, I was cool with you helping one or two of those Gentiles back in Tyre and Sidon. That was, that was weird, a little weird, but it was fine. But now compassion on tens of thousands of these pagan Gentiles? You're, you're out of control. You're just taking this way too far now, Jesus, and this is wrong. <laughs> what do you think Jesus would say back? Maybe something like, I will have mercy on who I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on who I will have compassion. I will have mercy on who I will. I will harden who I will. And oh, by the way, who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? So here Jesus performs a miracle of what I call unorthodox compassion. Personally expressing compassion toward these Gentiles. An act so egregious and unacceptable to the Jew. Then he turns the pressure up even more and he invites his Jewish disciples in. Hey, not only am I doing this, but come over here. Come, come do this with me. As a rabbi expects his followers to emulate his every move, he calls his disciples in to help feed these Gentiles, to help care for them, to help share a meal with them. <laughs> Sharing a meal with a Gentile was something so forbidden according to Jewish law. So no doubt, this was way outside of their comfort zone. It was awkward, confusing, unpleasant. So again, to make his point crystal clear, unlike the Gentile woman who had to practically beg for scraps of bread, Jesus doesn't hold back here. He doesn't ration the food. He stuffs them. The Greek word for satisfy here in verse 8 literally means to gorge, to supply food in abundance, to fatten. People, this is my kind of party. Like... I'm there. So Jesus essentially provides an all-you-can-eat buffet of fish and bread so that their bellies are filled up 
and they leave satisfied. So why does this matter? Well, it matters because the significance here is that his provision for these Gentiles was the exact same treatment that these Jews got. That's huge. Let's read again through verses 2 through 8. Verses 2 through 8. I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have had nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. So Jesus here is teaching his disciples. He's wanting them to emulate his actions because there's an end goal in mind here, right? He's preparing them for the Great Commission to go forth and make disciples of all nations. This isn't something you can just drop in a day. Oh, hey, by the way, um, <laughs> uh, we're going to go preach to the Gentiles. I mean, that, that's way too shocking of a message to just drop. Here Jesus is slowly getting them ready for this, and it's going to take them a while to get it. This commission will send them and other saints out to proclaim the good news that Jesus is Lord over all. And he will meet the needs of the Gentiles just the same as he'll meet the needs of the Jews. This, brothers and sisters, is an amazing miracle of unorthodox compassion. And it sort of provides a refreshing perspective on like a John 3.16, right? John 3.16, who's Jesus talking to? Nicodemus. Well, who's Nicodemus? He's in the Sanhedrin. He's the leader of the Jews. Rabbi, uh, he's, he's, a, he's like the stud of all the Pharisees thinking that Christ is coming to save them from those Gentiles and to make war with them. And here Jesus says that God so loved the world, Nicodemus. He so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16 has been dubbed as one of the most shocking Bible verses. And I always love that because we, we tend to think, how's that shocking? It's wonderful. Everyone knows it. But if you go back in time to what that must have, how that must have been received to a man like Nicodemus, that was truly a shocking statement. Now, I feel like I need to shift gears <clears throat> real quick and address the elephant that may be in the room. Rather, the elephant here in verse 4, where the disciples ask again, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? What? We can't just skim over this, right? Considering that these disciples literally just saw Jesus feed 15 to maybe 20,000 people from a little boy's lunch. What in the world are they asking this for? Well, the critics would, would look at this and go, aha, see? This is proof that this is a duplicate event because who in their right mind would see such a miracle and ask such a dumb question after that? But we can't forget the lesson that's been repeating itself throughout these surrounding chapters of Mark, right? We're going to see it more to come. The you are not getting it lesson, right? This lesson that comes from a hardened heart, seeing but not understanding. See, I don't think the issue here is that the disciples literally forgot 
what had happened months prior and are just asking a dumb question. No, they, they saw what Jesus did. And no doubt they remembered it. But like us, they probably are having a hard time exercising genuine faith through a heart that still has a lot of hard and rough patches in it. You know, trying to comprehend little bits at a time as the Lord reveals them. They can only take in so much. So it's easy to read this and think, what buffoons? It's easy to read about Peter denying Christ after being so close to him and think, what a disloyal coward. It's easy to think about the Israelites wanting to go back to Egypt after being delivered and think, what a bunch of ungrateful snowflakes. But don't we often forget the, the past provision of God? I mean, don't we leave God out of the equation so many times when we try to wrestle with life's issues on our own? You may have done this several times last week. This is why GCF stands on the mantra, preach gospel to yourself every day, daily. We have to preach the gospel to ourselves every, every day. See, we've had front row tickets to experience the miracle that God has worked in our own hearts, in our own life. We've seen him completely course correct our, our trajectory. And more importantly, then we've seen him redeem sinking marriages. We've seen him heal and cure disease. We've seen him answer so many prayers. And we've seen him provide in the most creative and abundant ways possible. Yet there's times then that we go on living as if we've completely forgotten everything that Jesus has ever done. We backslide as if we've never witnessed anything at all. So I don't believe the disciples asking Jesus where they're going to get food again is completely outrageous here. Or that it can just be explained away as having to be a duplicate event. It's just impossible. All right, back on track. Let's go to our third and final question. Is this applicable today? So we, we've learned it's the same narrative. It's a different miracle. It focuses on the Gentiles. This is astonishing, shocking. But is this applicable today. Well, earlier I used the term unorthodox compassion, that Jesus expressed unorthodox compassion towards these Gentiles. Now, this is <laughs> admittedly not a biblical term. This is one I put together. But it, it's helpful to be able to put a name to what we see Jesus put on display here. So before we seek to apply it, let me def define what I mean when I say the word unorthodox compassion. So let's define it as this. Unorthodox compassion is having compassion for someone while it is not acceptable or typical to do so. And that's the kicker. It's not just having compassion. It's having compassion for someone while it is not acceptable or typical to do so. So this will be our takeaway and frankly, our challenge this morning, church. See why this miracle of unorthodox compassion towards the Gentile uh, crowd was earth shattering back then. It does bring up a question of relevance for us today. I mean, how are we to fully comprehend what the cultural tensions were like between the Jew and Gentile when we didn't live during that time? We have no idea what it was like. And it's true, there have been similar occurrences throughout our history that some of you in this room may have lived to see, where others like myself are only left to imagine what it must have been like to be a Christian during the Holocaust, especially a Christian in Europe. Or to be a Christian of any ethnicity during the heat of the civil rights movement. So many times I wonder, what was it like for the faithful churches during these times? Right? Like, what was it like for our brothers and sisters in Christ 
to be faced with a decision to make. To get out of their comfort zones, to either emulate their teacher, Christ, with this unorthodox compassion, or to emulate the world's actions towards a specific individual or entire ethnic group. Well, today, here in 2022, the world is still a circus. The world is still dictating morality. Doesn't the world love to tell us who we're supposed to love and who we're supposed to hate? We do this as Christians, too, in the church sometimes, I think. Hate Democrats. Hate Republicans. No, 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 no. Hate non-vaxxers. In fact, don't you dare provide medical care for them if they get sick. Hate and repent of your skin color. Hate those who wear a badge or work in this line of business. Hate those who support this person or hate those who follow that person on social media. The noise is astonishing. It's so loud and the pressure is so turned up. So do we listen to it? Do we listen to this? Or do we follow the instructions and the example set before us from the greatest teacher of all time? The most compassionate, the most loving teacher of all time. See, brothers and sisters, Jesus wants us to emulate this unorthodox compassion. Just as he shows us in our verse this morning. To let go of stigmas, grudges, or hatred towards others for whatever reasons we think we have. Or simply because other people just do it. You kids out there, this may be something that Jesus has you practice at school this next week. You know, to maybe it's talking with the kids that no one really seems to care about or helping them out when they're in need. Let's not be buffet Christians when it comes to loving others where we, we get to pick and decide who deserves our compassion. So they'll get my compassion for sure, but I'm not giving it to this person. They don't deserve it. See, we need to see the world around us as the Lord Jesus sees them, as sheep without a shepherd. Right? People who are deserving of compassion regardless of what anyone else or the world says about them. Is this hard? Yeah. Is it uncomfortable? Yep. And can it be confusing? Yep. Unorthodox compassion is not easy, but it is such a miracle when we get to see other brothers and sisters express it daily. I mean, how encouraging is it, is it to hear stories where parents can express compassion towards the drunk driver who killed their child, who can invite them to church because they know they need the gospel when others are like, you should have no business dealing with them. They deserve to burn in hell for what they did to your child. Stories where the father made a mess of his family due to an adulterous affair after after so many accounts and being embraced, though, by his brothers and sisters in Christ, because he's in repentance, to see him cared for, loved, and encouraged as he fights to restore his relationship back with his family and his God. Where others would say, why are you doing that? He doesn't deserve that. To see wayward children embraced and welcomed home by their parents after years of rebellion, hard conversations, hurtful circumstances. When others say they had their chance, they blew it. Don't let them back in. See, Christ not only teaches us what this looks like in Mark 8, but he exemplifies this on a much larger scale as he goes to the cross. Where the world we live in celebrates sin and tells us we're okay, people. We're kind of all in this boat together. But we're okay. We're good enough. God saw it differently. See, our sin was rebellion against his holy nature. 
He declared us unworthy, an enemy as a result. The best works we could ever produce on this earth were like filthy rags to him. But then Christ appears on the scene and with this unorthodox compassion, and it's unorthodox because who in their right mind would ever give up their perfect and free life to exchange it for a guilty, vile lawbreaker? Who that knew no sin would voluntarily take on sin in order to restore us back into a right relationship with the judge? See, church, God's grace is truly unmerited favor. We don't behold it because we deserved it. We don't behold it because we've earned it. We get it because Christ expressed this unorthodox compassion by doing something that doesn't even make sense to us. Something nobody would ever offer up. He stepped into our mess. He took the blame for our mess. And he exchanged our mess for his perfection. So if he so richly has done this for us, then surely we can extend this to those around us. The name Jeffrey Dahmer has been circulating through the media quite a bit lately, and most shudder upon even hearing that name. For those of you who need a refresher for what I can say up here, Dahmer was an American serial killer who committed 17 murders and other inhumane crimes throughout the 70s and 80s. But in 1994, Dahmer was baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. He was evangelized by a pastor named Roy Ratcliffe, who no doubt was way out of his comfort zone evangelizing Dahmer. Could you imagine? Could you imagine what people would say to you? Hey, how was work today? Where'd you go? What'd you go do? Oh, I was um, in prison talking with uh, Jeffrey Dahmer. <laughs> Yet Roy displayed this unorthodox compassion on someone who the world understandably deemed to not even be a human, but a monster. As you can imagine, this led to a great deal of skepticism and debate. One instructor said, if Dahmer's in heaven, I don't want to be there with him. No thanks. But a skepticism is rooted from a heart that says that somebody is completely cut off, no longer deserving, no longer able to embrace the mercy and compassion of Christ, then the gospel is not being seen clearly. That's not the gospel. Who would have thought that the gospel would be so <laughs> disruptive? In an article called Sharing Heaven with Serial Killers, Rachel Joy Welcher writes, Ratcliffe began visiting him, Dahmer, and sharing the gospel. According to Ratcliffe, Dahmer struggled to grasp the depths of God's grace. It's not hard to understand why. For someone who committed such atrocious acts, grace must have, been, must have seemed unattainable. But in a 1994 interview with Stone Phillips, Dahmer said, I have accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Though we don't know of his sincerity until heaven, it's possible that one of the most twisted serial killers of our lifetime said yes to grace. There are some other quotes. I'm pausing the article right there. There are some other quotes regarding Dahmer's repentance that I wanted to throw in here. Uh, he says, I feel very very bad about the crimes I've committed. In fact, I think I should have been put to death by the state for what I did. Thank God there will be no more harm that I can do. I believe that only the Lord Jesus Christ can save me from my sins. He ends by reading 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 16, comparing himself to the Apostle Paul, who had killed Christians as part of his religious journey, for which he had been forgiven. 
Dahmer adds that he already has been forgiven through Christ. Jumping back into this article, Rachel continues, Do you want to see Dahmer in heaven? Ratcliffe wrote a book about the time he spent with Dahmer. If you skim the comments under the, the, uh, the book on Amazon, you will quickly see that our definition of grace doesn't always reflect God's. It made me wonder about the limits we put on grace. We love knowing God can save someone like Duck Dynasty patriarch Phil Robertson from a past of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But do we rejoice when he extends grace to a man who did such unspeakable and heinous crimes? We want to see Brad Pitt in heaven while hoping Hitler <laughs> didn't have a last-minute conversion. We want God to forgive us when we worship our many idols of leisure, but we shudder to think of a pedophile receiving the same forgiveness. I praise God the decision is not ours. While I am guilty of holding on to mercy with tight, stingy fists, the God I serve is not. He offers grace through Christ to any who call on his name. Romans 10, 13. So the last thing I want to call out, if there's some of you here in this room, and I hope there are, so I'm not alone in this, that find this message frustrating. Because like me, compassion is hard to muster up at times. If you hear this and you think, okay, I need to be more compassionate. Dave said it. I'll try harder. And you feel nothing on the inside, so you just muster up this fake compassion on the outside. Please stop. Don't do that. See, the root of this Greek word for compassion in our text literally means bowels, intestines. It speaks of our insides, our vital organs. So this genuine compassion that Christ had had to stem, it has to stem from the inside, our hearts. So if it's a struggle, the best and only thing we can do is pray. God, help me. Help me to see the world like you see it. Help me to stop being so judgmental. I'm so convinced after writing this sermon that I have a lot of praying to do in this area. So confess this and pray to God to soften your heart in this area and help you to feel it first at the heart level before you can express it on the outside. Let me close with this encouragement. If God can have compassion on the world's worst killer or compassion on the most pagan of nations, then surely there's room for you and I at the table, right? At the cross, Christ has broken down the walls of hostility between brother and sister. He's broken down the walls of hostility between man and God. And because of Christ's unorthodox compassion, we are no longer strangers. We're no longer aliens, but we're fellow citizens with the saints. Amen to that. So let's fill our bellies off of Christ's provision and let's share it with the world around us, especially when it's hard or not typical to do so. Let me end with this beautiful reminder from Ephesians. Can you please go to Ephesians chapter 2? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Please, if you can, please stand. Let's, let's stand while we read this. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, 
alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. It might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the, the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. You may be seated. Please pray with me.